Amen. Amen. Romans 14, beginning at verse 14. Of Romans, wow. Sorry, my brain is... Romans, Revelation. Romans, Revelation. Okay, let's try that again. Revelation 14, verse 14. We're going to take the rest of Revelation 14 and then the eight verses of Revelation 15 tonight. And these verses really are reminding us about God's preparation for the earth to be ruled by Jesus Christ. And so what we see here tonight is that God is laying out what needs to be laid out, getting ready to do what finally needs to be done so that the earth and the inhabitants of the earth are ready for Jesus Christ to come and rule. And for those who refuse to turn to faith in Christ, they will be removed from the earth before he comes to rule and reign on the earth. And so we see that being played out here tonight. And hopefully, again, just as with the songs that we've sung tonight, we will see the glory of God just shining through this passage tonight. I want to, again, begin... In Revelation 14, 14, where John says, Then I looked, and a white cloud appeared. Clouds are always associated with the presence of God, the presence of His divine majesty. And seated on the cloud was one like the Son of Man. Again, I believe this is a reference to what Daniel talked about in Daniel 7. Listen to these verses about describing, if you will, the Son of Man. It is the Messiah of the Old Testament, the Anointed One. Daniel writes, And with the clouds of the sky, one like a son of man was approaching. He went up to the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. To him was given ruling authority, honor, and sovereignty. All peoples, nations, and language groups were serving him. His authority is eternal and will not pass away. His kingdom will not be destroyed. This is the Son of Man. And so far from a term of humiliation, this is actually a term of exaltation. As the Son of Man, He is the Messiah, the one who was destined through the eternal purposes of God to come and rule over the earth. And that's exactly what, again, we see God preparing the earth for here. Let me also say this. Once again, in this passage, we're reminded of the preparations of God. And, and, and I think it's always good for us when we are reminded of that to also be reminded ourselves in a very practical way that God is right now preparing us as well. We should never forget that. That our whole life as a child of God is just one preparation after another. So whatever you're going through, not going through, whatever you're dealing with, not dealing with, whatever that is, always remember something. That God is preparing you and I for what's down the road, for something else. It, it's always to strengthen us. It's always, it's always to give us maybe a greater platform of ministry down the road. It's always for His glory. But there's always preparation involved. And we see that preparation of God again here 
uh, for Jesus Christ to come. Notice this. He had a golden crown on his head. And this is the Greek word Stephanos. And the reason that is significant is because this is a crown of victory through conflict. That's important. It's the same kind of crown that God says will be yours if you overcome, or mine if we overcome. And it reminds us that God wants us to learn through Him to overcome and be victorious through things. That's who gets the crown, if you will. And just like Jesus, now Jesus certainly has the inherent right to rule, the diadema crown, if you will, but here it is the Stephanos crown, the crown that was given for victory through conflict. And isn't this a great contrast between the crown of thorns that he wore while on earth? When you think about the crown of thorns that was placed upon him and the pain and the, the suffering and all of that, and now we go from that crown of thorns to this crown of victory. Victory through the suffering of Jesus Christ and who he is and what he's done. But notice here again, this time, he's not here to die for the sins of mankind. Here, he is getting ready to reap the earth. Here, he is getting ready for this massive harvest that the Bible has predicted one day will come on the earth. And so Jesus here is seen with this sharp sickle, verse 14, in his hand. And by the way, the word sharp here uh, also means swift and quick in the Greek language. In other words, God is reminding us, just like many times it is with God, that God may seem to delay for a long time, but then when God does act, it happens very swiftly and very quickly. And that's what we see happening here. It may have been, you know, a millennia or more for waiting for this harvest to come, if you will, but when it comes, there will be no more delay. It will be swift and it will be quick. And this harvest even reminds us of the language of harvest and agriculture in the Bible. Because God wants us to approach our relationship with Him, our life with Him, our service with Him, more from an agricultural standpoint than an industrial standpoint. More from a sowing a seed standpoint than a microwave standpoint. And see, that's hard for us because we no longer live in an agrarian society primarily. We live in the microwave generation. And yet in approaching spiritual things and approaching God, God says you and I have to adopt the mindset of the farmer. We've got to adopt the mindset of harvest. Because Paul really lays this out very well in Galatians 6 when he says, Be not deceived. God will not be made a fool or mocked. Whatever a man or woman sows, that shall he also what? Reap. In other words, there will be a harvest. 
of everything that we have sown. And so the Bible teaches us, be careful what we sow, you see. Be careful what we are sowing, what we are planting, if you will. Because there will be a harvest that will come. And a harvest never occurs in the same season of the sowing. This is why the book of Ecclesiastes says that men who, who have, are rejecting God somehow think that they're getting away with what they're getting away with. Because God doesn't come down with a bolt of lightning and just sort of take care of things as soon as they do something evil. Because God obviously wants to give men time to repent and to turn. And we're going to learn here in the book of Romans in a couple of weeks that the goodness of God actually leads men to repentance. Not the judgment of God. It's when people are aware of what could have been and what God didn't do that begins to drive them towards God. So here we are seeing a harvest about ready to take place on the earth. And so John says, another angel came out of the temple, the spiritual temple, the heavenly temple, that God told Moses that all the things that I'm instructing you are just going to be copies of what is already in heaven. And he is shouting in a loud voice to the one seated on the cloud, use or thrust your sickle and start to reap or harvest. Because the time to reap has come. This word time means a fixed and definite time in God's calendar. And it is a reminder that there is coming this time of gathering and separating, if you will. That's what harvesting is all about. God is going to gather everything in and he's going to separate what needs to be separated. And that's why I said at the very beginning, before we even started worship tonight, that we need to be encouraged by a God that can gather all these loose ends together and bring everything together under Jesus Christ. Because one day that's exactly what's going to happen. I mean, you think about just our lives. At any given time, we're like overwhelmed by just the things that are hanging out there in our lives. And that's just one person. Multiply that by millions of people all over the earth. Oh, and then the vast universe itself. And none of that overwhelms God at all. You see. And he's going to gather through this harvest everyone under Christ and separate what needs to be separated, vindicate who needs to be vindicated, bring justice to those who need to have justice brought. And God can keep all of this together. We have a hard time keeping our one life and all of the details together. And God is so great that he keeps the entire humanity that ever existed in the universe. Every human being who's ever been created along with the universe itself and can gather it 
No wonder he's deserving of worship. So the one seated on the cloud swung or put the sickle in over the earth and the earth was reaped or harvested. This is an outworking of the parables of Jesus that he gave to his own followers when he talked about one day there's coming the separation of the wheat from the chaff. And can I say here, many, many people have misinterpreted those passages in the Gospels because they have applied those passages to the church. In other words, you know, in the church, there's wheat and chaff, and we just don't, you know, and Jesus says, you know, don't separate it uh, because we'll do that at the end. It has nothing to do with the church. First of all, the church is gone. And first of all, this is in the tribulation period. This has nothing to do with the church. This is when Jesus comes back here on earth and separates the believers on earth during the tribulation from those who have worshipped and bowed down to the beast. That's what those passages are referring to in their proper context. And then he goes from the picture of a harvest to the picture of a wine press. Verse 17, Then another angel came out of the temple or dwelling of God in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Another angel who was in charge of the fire, which I think again speaks of the, the, the righteous judgment of God that is coming, came from the altar and called out in a loud voice to another angel who had the sharp sickle, Use or thrust your sharp sickle and gather now the clusters of grapes off the vine of the earth because the grapes are now ripe. I want you to look at the word ripe in verse 18 and then go back up to verse 15 and see that the earth's harvest is ripe. Those two words in the Greek language literally mean overripe or overdue. In other words, the implication in teaching here is God has been very patient with the evil, wicked rebelliousness of mankind and that actually the earth is overripe for his judgment. It is overdue. God isn't being impatient here at all. He's actually waited for a long time until, in a sense, the fruit of that man has, the things that man has sown has come to its extreme, if you will, which is what it means here. The highest degree of ripeness. You can almost picture it as if, as if the grapes are almost not even good. They're so ripe, they're, they're already starting to crack and, and, and the juice is oozing out. That's the picture that John gives here. And it is a reminder, once again, of the patience and long-suffering of God. Why? Because he wants to give as many people possible an opportunity and chance to repent because there's coming a time where there will not be that opportunity any longer. And so, in a sense, we could say from our perspective, God has put up for such a long time with such an awful lot, but there's coming a day where he won't any longer. In fact, notice the language used here. Pretty sobering. 
Use your sharp sickle, gather the clusters of grapes off the vine of the earth because its grapes are now ripe. Verse 19, so the angel swung his sickle over the earth, gathered the grapes from the vineyard of the earth and tossed them, cast them, threw them into the great wine press of the wrath of God. Wine press, simply a vat in which grapes were stomped or trodden upon. The wrath of God is very misunderstood by many. The best way I understand the wrath of God is to define it as his righteous passion. In other words, God is so holy and God understands the destructiveness of all that is contrary to Him, that there is such a passion, such a burning within Him for things to be right. In fact, He cannot, He could not, as God, let evil and wickedness go forever without being reconciled. Or he would cease to be God. He would cease to be holy. He would cease to be a righteous God. Because all that is perfect righteousness that is embodied in the Godhead has such a passion for rightness that one day he will make sure everything becomes right as it should be. And not as man has messed it up and made it any longer. He's certainly given man a lot of leeway to mess things up and do what man wanted to do. But one day, because of his righteous passion or his passion for rightness, his wrath is going to come. And notice the one example that John is picturing here is actually an example, I believe, of the aftermath of the battle of Armageddon that we're going to get to in a couple weeks later on in the book of Revelation when he writes in verse 20, then the winepress was stomped, trampled, crushed outside the city of Jerusalem. And notice, blood poured out of the winepress up to the height of horses' bridles. For a distance of almost 200 miles, even Christians have a hard time wrapping their minds around the carnage that is described here in this verse. But the Bible clearly says that in the valley of Jehoshaphat, the valley of Jezreel, that is east of Jerusalem, One day the armies of the earth will gather in this great valley of decision for one final conflict. And when they see Jesus Christ coming, instead of conflicting with each other, they turn their wrath, if you will, towards the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Bible says that they will be crushed. In fact, later on, the Bible says that the blood splattered from that battlefield even gets on the garments of Jesus Christ himself. A 200-mile-long stretch of blood splattered upon the horse's bridles. 
But God is preparing the earth for Jesus Christ to reign and for things to be right. And every individual who refuses to turn to God in faith will be removed from the earth at this time. Chapter 15. Then I saw another great and astounding sign in heaven. Seven angels who have seven last or final plagues. They are final because in them God's anger, his righteous passion is completed. It's fulfilled. It is finished. In fact, this Greek word is the same word that Jesus used on the cross when he said, it is finished. One day it will all be done. Then I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire, mingled again with fire. And those who had conquered the beast, those who had been victorious over the beast in his image and the number of his name, and they're there, safe and secure. And let's remember something. They didn't conquer the beast because they were able to somehow remain alive. They actually died as martyrs. But it had nothing to do with their physicalness. And it had everything to do with the fact that they didn't bow down and worship the beast. And because of that, God says, you've conquered. You've conquered. You have overcome as well. And they were standing, again, safe and secure by the sea of glass, holding harps given to them by God. Harps are always associated with the praise and worship of God. And one day... God is going to give harps to people to worship him. So even if you don't play an instrument down here, you'll have a harp to play. And even if you don't engage in worship down here and like to sing, oh, you'll sing up there. Because you're not going to tell God, I don't feel like singing, right? You might do that down here, but you're not going to do that there. And, and notice, after the harps are given out, it says they sang. That word sing or sang means to praise God with song. That's what we're going to do in heaven. That's one of the things we're going to do. And he says they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Why the song of Moses? Well, if you go back to the song that Moses wrote after the nation of Israel was delivered by God out of Egypt and went and passed through the Red Sea, Moses gives this great song of praise to God. And it, it, the primary thrust of the song is the uniqueness of God. And, and this passage is very parallel to Moses and the Exodus because as God delivered seemingly and possibly the nation of Israel out of slavery in Egypt and, and got them through the Red Sea and all that, God now is delivering and rescuing and, and all that people out of the Great Tribulation and helping them to pass through that terrible time as well. And, and so there's a parallel there. Even in Moses' name, which means drawing out, we can even go back to even before Moses became the leader of God's people, that even when he was a baby and Moses' parents set him adrift 
and he was drawn out. Again, it reminds us of just how great God is that God supernaturally watched over and intervened in that situation for Moses to even be preserved when other babies were being murdered by Pharaoh. And here is what the song and the words of the song are. Great and astounding are your deeds. The first thing we see is the concentration on the works of God. Every once in a while, I think as Christians, it's good for us to just sit and remind ourselves of the works of God. Notice, great, powerfully effective, astounding, marvelous, wonderful are your deeds, your acts, your works. Do we contemplate the works of God? And then do we contemplate the ways of God? Notice, Lord God, the supreme master of the universe, all-powerful, the one who holds all things, the one who rules over all, just, righteous, upright, and true are your ways of conduct. So God is being, you know, praised for his works. He's also being praised for his ways. Not only what he does, but why he does it and how he does it. And it always goes back to the fact that he is a righteous, just, upright God. Everything he does is right. We may not understand it, but it's right. And it's true especially in contrast to the beast and to Satan, who's the father of lies and all of this, everything God does is sincere. It is genuine. It is true. There's no bait and switch with God like there is with Satan or our spiritual enemy. He's absolutely transparent. And then notice, king over the nations or multitudes. He's the leader. He's the Lord. Then in verse 4, Who will not fear you, reverence or respect you, O Lord, and glorify your name, magnify, celebrate, honor your name, because you alone are holy. We sang about that tonight. So notice again, God is being praised for his works, for his ways, and for the fact that he is worthy here in this song of Moses and song of the Lamb. And let's remember, the word holy means in the context of God, without companion, no equal, unique. There is no one like God. That's what the word holy means. He is totally separate from all that He created. He is the uncreated One. And we see Him being praised for that here. Notice, all nations will come and worship before you. One day, all the nations of the world will fall in line under Jesus Christ. Let me go back there. I just thought of this. My fingers aren't as nimble as they used to be. Just share this real quick with you. If I can find it. Yeah. So in Ephesians 1.10, Paul tells us 
that God, toward the administration of the fullness of times, here's the end result from God's perspective. To head up all things in Christ, the things in heaven and the things on earth. Ephesians 1.10. To head up, in other words, to make Jesus head over everything. To, or we could say to bring all things under Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what John is saying. That's why the Bible is so consistent in its message about what God's plan is going to be. All nations will come and worship before you. Yeah, I have time. Keep your finger in Revelation and go back to the book of Psalms real quick. Uh, I want to tie this in very practically tonight. And I hope that you've seen tonight this passage of, of worship to God. And just again, how great God is and how He's going to tie everything up in the Lord Jesus one day and gather everything underneath Him. And if He's going to do that one day with the entire universe and the entire world and all the nations of the world, then I should be able to trust Him with the details of my life as well. Which brings us back to Psalm 46, verse 10. I shared this before our worship time tonight, but I want you all to see this tonight. This is a great verse. The psalmist says, Stop your striving and recognize that I'm God. In other words, be still, stop, be silent, just slow down long enough to recognize that I am God. And then in the context, notice the rest of the verse. I will be exalted above the nations. I will be exalted above the earth. In other words, there's coming this day where everything's going to be under Jesus Christ. And He's got it. He's going to gather everything. Every human being, everything they've ever done. It's all going to be worked out one day. And if our God is great enough to be able to do that, then He's great enough to be able to handle every and all details of our life. That's why we need to come to the God who one day will be above all the nations and above all the earth. And we need to stop striving and stop, you know, sort of writhing inside and just give it to God and trust Him with it. And then Psalm 86. Psalm 86, verse 9. Another Old Testament prophecy about the nations coming to worship the Lord. Notice in Psalm 86, 9, all the nations whom you created will come and worship you, O Lord. They will honor your name. That's what's coming, my friends. And just like we shared Sunday, that might not be in everybody's reality, but that's God's reality. And it's going to happen whether people want it to, think it is, whatever, because it's God's universe. He created it. We're living in His reality, not the reality that we're making up that really isn't reality at all, as we said Sunday. And so, this is what's going to come. This is real. I mean, we can deny it. We can pretend it's not going to happen. You know, it's, it's happening. It will happen just as God said. And no one's going to stop God from doing it. All the nations of the earth will try to stop God from ruling and reigning on the earth. Can't do it. Can't do it. Back to Revelation. After these things, 
I looked, and the spiritual temple in heaven, the tent of the testimony, was opened in heaven. Why is there reference to this tent of testimony? Every time the word testimony or witness is used here, it's taking us back to the commandments of God, the precepts, the principles of God, because that's the standard by which God is going to judge, you see. Even though man might disregard God's word, that's the standard. And the seven angels who had the seven plagues came out of the temple dressed in clean, pure, bright, shining linen, wearing wide golden belts or bands around their chest. This again speaks about the righteous character of their mission, which is about to commence on the earth. Then one of the four living creatures or supernatural beings gave the seven angels seven golden bowls full or filled with the wrath of God. Again, the righteous passion of God who lives forever and ever. He's eternal. He's always been and he's always going to be. And notice the temple was filled with smoke from God's glory. Smoke usually always attends, again, the presence of God, especially in judgment. And from his power. By the way, the word glory here speaks about God's absolute perfection and personal excellency. We can't even imagine how perfect God is. And we will say, you know, hey, my God, he's perfect. He's sinless. He's righteous. You know, we use all those words. But my friends, I truly believe that when we get to heaven and, and we actually see the glory of God, we'll be like, he's got it. In fact, before I close, let me illustrate this point. Because many times, especially Christians who've went through really tough times on earth or horrific experiences or whatever, it's almost like, you know, that we, that we try as, as best we can, even as Christians, but we're still human, to somehow try to figure out what heaven's going to be like by the way we think and the way we look at things on earth. And my friends, I, don't, I think we do a disservice when we try to do that. Because when we get there and we are glorified and when we see him and we will be like him for we will see him as he is, our perspective is totally going to change when we get there. Because it's no longer going to be about us. It's all going to be about Him. And it's not going to matter, in a sense, what we went through even to get there. That is, that's going to be inconsequential when we stand before this unbelievable God. And we're able to be in His presence and fellowship with Him in a way that we've never been able to fellowship, and on a plane we've never been able to fellowship with him before. And here's the illustration of that, even from this passage. Because remember who's singing this song are those who were martyred out of the great tribulation. So let's face it, they've been through a lot, right? And yet when they get to heaven, their focus isn't on, oh my goodness, can you imagine what we just went through and all we had to do to get here and, you know, we all died for our faith and all that? No, not a word about that. Notice what their focus is beginning in verse 3. Great and astounding are your deeds, Lord God, the all-powerful. Just and true are 
your ways, king over the nations? Who will not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name because you alone are holy? All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Notice, it's all about God. It's not about us. Because when we get to actually be in the presence of our great God that we sang about tonight, everything else is going to fade into the background. All the things that we thought, oh, I, you know, I want to, I want to know this and I want to ask you this. When we are in the presence of God, I'm not saying he's not going to answer some of our questions and and we're not going to have some understanding that we don't have. But I'm telling you, my friends, when we get to glory and we stand before this great God, the only thing we will want to do is praise and worship and thank him. And realize that whatever our concept of God was here on earth, However great, however much we elevated God's in our mind, however, you know, big and great and good we thought he was, it's going to be nothing compared to the reality of what he is when we are there with him. And that's why I even try to comfort people who, who maybe think about, well, you know, say something happens to me. And I have family and friends left behind. Am, am, am I going to worry about what's going on down here on earth after I go there? And I try to tell them, no, you're not going to worry. And here's why. Because when you get into the presence of God and you see who God is, you're just going to go, God's got this. I can focus on God. I don't need to focus on what's going on down on earth because I know God's got it all. He's, he's going to take care of it all. He's so great. I don't have to worry or be anxious about anything that I thought I was going to be worried or anxious about. And that's exactly what we see playing out here, even from these folks who go through the great tribulation. Verse 7, Then one of the four living creatures gave the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from God's glory and from his power. And notice this. At this point in history, no one could go in or out of the temple in heaven until the seven plagues from the seven angels were completed. It's almost like God, at this point, is saying, stop everything that you're doing until this is done. Because what's about to take place is his final judgment upon the earth dwellers who worship the beast. And in a sense, we are finally at the book of Revelation and in human history at the point of no return. There will be no more who come into God's kingdom at this point. This is it. It, it was, it's just like when Noah's, the door of Noah's ark was shut. That's what's happening here. And I want you to see in closing tonight, and then if you just hang in there, I, I have a couple things I want to share after we close. I, I hope you notice, though, the, the, the nature and character of God at this moment in saying, 
Everything stop. Because we can only imagine what the Creator God who created all these people, who loves them more than we could ever imagine, what He internally, in a sense, as God, is, is dealing with as this judgment finally falls. As He already has told us, He takes no pleasure at all in the death of the wicked. And there's got to be, within even the being of God, this this soberness of the moment of about what's to take place, which is why I think he says everything just stop. No activity, no motion. Because we are at this point. And even though we, in our very feeble way as human beings, think about how awful this is, we have no concept of how God views this. In that we never created any of us. He did. He made all this for us. And His love for every human being that He ever created is a perfect love. We have no idea what perfect love is. So we can't even imagine what it's like to judge your own creation. And yet we understand because of what we've once again learned and been reminded of tonight. He has to do this. If he doesn't do this, then nothing is ever right. And he is no longer righteous. Remember this and think about this in the days and weeks ahead. If there is no judgment one day, then that also means there are no absolutes in the universe. And if there are no absolutes in the universe, that also means that there's really no meaning to anything. It's all connected. And we see it playing out here. Hey, before we close in prayer tonight, a couple things. One, I am very much looking forward to our baptism this coming Saturday. We have 10 people being baptized this Saturday. And four children, three girls, one boy. We have six adults, one gal, and get this, five men. Now let me tell you something, why that's significant to me. I've been a pastor for 30 years I've done a lot of baptisms in 30 years. I have never, in one baptism, baptized that many men. Usually I'm baptizing one or two, mostly women, mostly children. Five men. I love it. I love it. I can't wait. And I'm sharing that because maybe somebody else wants to be baptized. You've got time because we're not doing it till Saturday. Just let me know and we'll add you to the list. One other thing. Barb, we love you. And this is Barb's last day with us. She's going back to New Hampshire after today and won't be back till spring. So make sure you 
Pardon? Fall. Yeah, this is Romans Revelation. Yeah, you can tell I'm really with it. Um, So make sure you get by and give Barb a hug and tell her how much you're going to miss her. But she's part of our church family, even though she's only here half the year. But we love her and we're going to miss her. So let's pray. God, we thank you for what you're doing in our in our lives. And we, we pray, God, that the things that we read and that we contemplate and that we meditate out of this great book of Revelation, what, what's going to happen one day? Lord, wouldn't just be stuff that seems so far away that it doesn't affect the here and now of our lives, but that we sort of begin to order our lives around you even now. And know, God, that one day a great harvest is coming. And one day, God, you even promised us that the harvest of our lives is going to come to fruition one day. We're going to see the fruit, the results, the consequences, the ramifications of the choices, the decisions, the seeds, the sowing that we did in our lives. And what is contrary to you will be burned up. What is not contrary to you will be able to carry into eternity. And so God, help us to live and begin to live for eternity even here and now. Not to wait until we get to heaven to be eternally minded, but to be eternally minded every day that we live. Setting our affection on things above, as Paul says to the Colossians, not things on the earth. Taking the advice of Jesus, of laying up our treasure in heaven, not on the earth. And so God, I pray that that would be the result of these studies in Revelation. And that God, that we would see your greatness like we've never seen it before. That we would be reminded of your uniqueness, that you are without equal, you are without companion. There is no one ever like you, and nor will there ever be one like you. And God, when we finally are in your presence one day and see you, all the things that we were so concerned about, so worried about, so so upset about, Lord, we'll sit there and we'll go, why? Why didn't I just trust him? Why didn't I just rest in him? And so God, I think, is saying to all of us tonight, stop your striving. Be still. Recognize that I am God. That one day I will be exalted above the nations. One day I will be exalted above the earth. And if I can can take care of this universe, if I can watch out over all my creation, if one day I will gather all the details of all men and women's lives of all eternity under Jesus Christ, can I not be trusted to take care of the details of our individual lives? Yes, you can, God. Help us to trust you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, guys, for being here. We'll see you Sunday.